In this episode, I respond to a listener's question, and I'm going to be addressing a lot. I'm talking about autism and the polyvagal theory, uh, our partner's defensive state, how we feel about that. My name is Justin Sinceri. I'm a licensed marriage and family therapist that thinks the world needs a new paradigm for mental health. Welcome to Stuck Not Broken. This podcast is not therapy, nor is intended to be a replacement for therapy. This is absolutely not life advice for you or for the writer or for anybody else. I'm sharing my general thoughts. Please do not take this literally as if I'm speaking to you. I'm just speaking generally. I'll be addressing three separate issues, autism and polyvagal theory, a little bit. Our partner's defensive state, and then also how we feel about that. This came originally from via Instagram. And some of this is just like, I kind of want to take it this direction, but some of this is more uh, specifically what she's asking for. Oh, by the way, last week I announced that I'll have an edited version of the replay for Polyvagal 101. That does not look like it's going to happen. I mean, the editing, it just didn't go the way I expected it to whatsoever. So that's kind of on hold. Uh, there will be a version of Polyvagal 101, the webinar coming out, uh, but I will get back to you on that. So just sit tight for now. I shouldn't have announced that back then. I should have just waited last week. I'm sorry. But but there will be something coming out. Anyhow, yeah, Instagram through DM wrote monotone voice, flat affect, etc. My husband is like this always. Autism also displays these characteristics. What is the correlation, please? Is he autistic or just constantly down the ladder? That's the first part. I'm going to save uh, the second part. So I'm just going to respond to this for now. I, I have no idea. I have no idea if your husband would fall on the autism spectrum. And that would be wildly inappropriate for me to diagnose or give my thoughts on him in particular. So again, just kind of speaking generally here. Um, there is potentially a polyvagal connection to autism or to the autism spectrum, potentially. And this is something that Porges has written on. I'll link to an essay that he wrote or a paper he wrote in the description. But I'm, I'm going to read directly from that to kind of give us an idea here. And I'm not, I don't consider myself an autism expert whatsoever. I have a very light understanding of it. Like, you'd be surprised. When it comes to therapy school, people often say, well, don't you learn in depth about trauma and polyvagal theory and whatnot? And the answer is no. Uh, and likewise, we get some education on the autism spectrum, but it, not not a whole lot in my opinion. That all A lot of the stuff is like what we learn after schooling, or at least my experience. Okay, so uh, Portis has written on this, and here's a direct quote. He says, Observations of the behaviors and physiologic response of autistic individuals suggest that they have great difficulties in recruiting the neural circuit that regulates the social engagement system. And as well, so that's that's one part. But on top of that, he says, because the vagus is integrated into several feedback systems involving both peripheral and central structures, depression or dysregulation of the vagus might be manifested on several levels. So let me quickly interpret that as best I can here. The first part of that, he's saying that basically people on the, saying that autistic individuals potentially could have basically a difficult time accessing their, their ventral vagal, their safety state. That's basically what he's saying. And then the second part of what he's saying is that the vagus is connected to so many things that if there is some dysregulation via the vagus, through the vagus, 
then you we would see uh, dysregulation in different uh, in, in different aspects of someone who's on the autism spectrum, which I'm going to go into in a little bit here. So not just social, and usually we I think a lot of times we associate uh, autism spectrum with the sociability aspect of it, but there is potentially uh, much more. So basically, someone in a in a state of defense has less access to their safety state, and this is a non non-spectrum individual they have less access to their safety state me you anybody if we're in a state of defense if we're down our polyvagal ladder we simply have less access to our safety state which is the similar potentially very similar for someone with autism but the potential for self-regulation seems to be different and again i'm not an expert but that's there seems to be a big difference in the potentiality for self-regulation for climbing our own ladder on our own so someone can become in a defensive state just day to day, someone who's not on the spectrum, spectrum, but they can get back up to their safety state. They can self-regulate through whatever it is or even receive co-regulation. And it's really not a big deal. Someone who is on the autism spectrum simply has less access to their safety state. Uh, it seems like chronically. And it's not just that. because So it's not just an issue of not being able to socialize. The safety state is not just for socialization and like social engagement, but that's where critical thinking happens. That's where health and growth and restoration happens. A lot of things come along with being in our ventral vagal state of safety and social engagement. It's not, it's not just about social engagement. So a lot of things come along with that. So that, but that's the similarities that someone in a, in a state of defense has less access to their safety state. Similarly, someone on the autism spectrum seems like has less access to their safety state or that's what Porter is, is arguing that's i mean just that's the connection but it, it obviously is not that simple either so autism in particular will have other characteristics that are not necessarily part of a typical down the ladder individual so that's we have to kind of differentiate what these could look like i got this from autismspeaks.org and i'll put a link in the description uh, to an article called what are symptoms or what are the symptoms of autism i believe uh, but I'll, I'll have a link in the description. So people with autism not only have the social engagement difficulties, but they also might have challenges with spoken language. And, and again, this is directly from that website. It says a third of autistic people are nonverbal. Someone who's in a defensive state, even a stuck defensive state that's not on the spectrum, isn't necessarily going to have issues with uh, their ability to utilize language. Someone with autism may have repetitive body movements, for example, rocking, flapping, spinning, running back and forth. Someone on the spectrum may have repetitive motions with objects uh, like spinning wheels, shaking sticks, uh, flipping levers. Somebody on the, on the spectrum may have behaviors of staring at lights or spinning objects. They may have ritualistic behaviors like lining up objects, repeatedly touching objects in a set order. Uh, this individual may have narrow or extreme interests in specific topics. They have, may have a need for unvarying routine and resistance to change. For example, the same daily schedule, meal menu, clothes, the same route to school. And they may also have sensory issues like being over or under sensitive to sensory stimuli like lights. So these are not necessarily aspects of someone who's in a stuck defensive state or even just in a defensive state that they can self-regulate out of. 
for someone on, on the spectrum, this is kind of day in, day out, it sounds like, aspects of life. But there are similarities with someone who is in a defensive state. So things like maybe tone of voice, eye contact, socialization, emotional expression, uh, being overwhelmed in social situations, talking over others. But with someone, I think, with, with autism, it's not really an aggressive thing. If you're in flight fight, it's going to be more anxiety-ridden anxiety or aggressive. Um, and it's, it's more than just like missing social cues. There's aggression to it. There's dominance. That's, that's a part of it. So there are some similarities. You know, tone of voice, someone's in a defensive state, has less access to their vocal prosody, that sing-song quality of their voice. So they might have a, a deeper, I, I would say maybe more high-pitched voice. Someone who's in like a flight, flight uh, anxiety might have more of a high-pitched. Uh, but they're, they're going to basically have less vocal prosody. They're going to make less eye contact. They're going to have less socialization while they're in the defensive state. Uh, they're going to have less emotional expression. Their their affect might even go flat for someone who's just temporarily or even stuck in a defensive state. They might be easily overwhelmed in social situations. They're really not ready to socially engage when we're, you know, down the ladder. And they might talk over others. So that, you know, I wouldn't say it looks like autism, but there are shared similarities with the autism spectrum. But I, w I wouldn't say that it looks like autism. So, you know, are, are there similarities? Sure. Is it necessarily the same thing as being stuck in a defensive state or even temporarily stuck that you can self-regulate out of? No, I mean, it's, these are like worlds apart. In my opinion, not just in my opinion, these, these are worlds apart. But the idea that from Dr. Porter's the explanation, the, the poten potential is that the autistic individual or someone on the spectrum, um, they simply have less capacity to access their ventral state or the ventral safety state, social engagement state, those pathways are uh, just uh, harder to activate, harder to stay in. It's kind of what I'm gathering. I think that's, that's the basic idea of it. So this, this person that's on the spectrum, they have much more difficulty with utilizing their ventral vagal safety pathways. It's kind of just less accessible. Porges's safe and sound protocol, the idea is to utilize sound that has more, it's like designed to be, I believe, more prosodic and to quote unquote stimulate the, uh, the vagus nerve or, you know, at least the safety pathways. It's supposed to stimulate them through sound, which is, you know, cues of safety through prosody for any of us will be a, a cue of safety, which will help us to climb our ladders. So I believe that safe and sound protocol, that's the basic idea. And that's been utilized, uh, I believe, with uh, autism, people on the autism, spe uh, autism spectrum. And from what Porter's reports, there's been a lot of success there. So they have less ability to be in their ventral state. Is it completely gone? I, I don't know, but it seems like no. It seems like there is some potential there for that individual to to have those ventral pathways active and to experience some level of social engagement and connection and safety, at least in that moment. I don't know. I couldn't tell you how long-lasting that is, how permanent that is. I, I don't think it's a issue of a cure or anything like that. Um, but that, that's kind of, that's the potential connection there. But they're different. They're, they're, they're way different. Autism versus a stuck defensive state or even just a temporary one is very different.
So this is where I, I kind of want to take this a couple different places. And I don't think that, that I don't think I was asking this for this in particular, but this is kind of where, where my mind went with this question. So regardless of all of this, like let's not diagnose our partners. That's kind of where I, I went with this just in, in my own planning for the episode here. Let, let's, let's not diagnose our partners. So maybe we can look at polyvagal theory and it gives us an explanation for, you know, not just who we are, but who our spouses are. Okay, fine. And maybe that gives us a sense of understanding them and maybe even a sense of predictability. Maybe you can actually utilize that in, in some sort of attempt to help. But it's also potentially just a label that we can now fling at our significant others or our families or our friends or whoever it is. So I would be really reluctant to to encourage you to view people in that way. It might be helpful. It, it can be, but it also could not be. I mean, this stuff could be just like a DSM diagnosis. The, I, in my opinion, these things can be used inappropriately. I think it could sound very similar. So when you're arguing or you're, or you're in your own uh, aggressive fight state, maybe, when you're in that state and you're attempting to communicate with your significant other, stuff like, hey, you're a blankety blank, you're a jerk, go get help, might come out of your mouth, right? Similarly, I don't think they're the same thing, but I think the intent is the same thing. You may also say, hey, you're a narcissist, go get help. That's a diagnosis, but it can be used wildly inappropriately. Similarly, you could easily say, you're in your fight state, you jerk, go get help. (laughs) What's happening is we can take these, whether it's a diagnosis or a spot on the polyvagal ladder, these could easily become parts of judgment and blame. The beauty of the polyvagal theory is that there really is no judgment to it. It just is. You know, it's a, it's a new concept, new paradigm for viewing ourselves and then building a new narrative for ourselves. So there's no inherent value there. There's no judgment. There's no blame. But you can take these things and then use them and weaponize them in your arguments with people that you care about. So that's my concern. And again, I don't, I'm not picking this up from, I'm not saying that. This is just in general. This is my, my concern in general. So I would, I would encourage people in general to stay away from diagnosing the people they care about. And whether you're diagnosing through the DSM or you're diagnosing through the polyvagal ladder or just diagnosing through comments like calling people names like jerk and asshole and stuff, whatever the labels, let's not call it a diagnosis, let's call it a label. No matter what your paradigm for labeling somebody is, this can be weaponized in that way. The message is that you're the problem. You have the diagnosis. You're abnormal. You're not treating me right. There's something wrong with you. So being able to see the polyvagal theory and apply it to others. I mean, as therapists, that's what I, as a therapist, that's what I do. 
So it has its uses on a professional level, absolutely. As a parent, I utilize my knowledge of polyvagal theory with, with my kids. There's a use there. And yeah, I, I do, I'll, I'll utilize it in my marriage as well. But the angle is, where am I on my polyvagal ladder? How much co-regulation am I able to give to somebody? Not, you're the problem, this is where you're at, you fix yourself. No, it, it's me. I'm going to apply this to myself and build myself a new narrative. I'm going to put the responsibility on myself to do what I can as part of this dyad, which will hopefully help the other person or the family as a whole, but myself first. So diagnoses can be misused no matter what your paradigm for diagnosis is, and including and like it, diagnosis can be used in, misused in the therapy space, but not in the non-therapy space. They absolutely can be flung around at each other uh, haphazardly and very inappropriately. So that, that's my concern in general when it comes to stuff like this. I would encourage us to not diagnose each other. It doesn't seem to go well. All right, so she goes on and she says, I have been triggered by it constantly. So she's been triggered by monotone voice, flat affect, etc. You are the first to explain it. A million thanks, she says. Please, please, please reply. I have suffered so much over years and I have asked him infinite times to not be monotonous, monotonous? and to smile, etc. And you're the first person to ever back me up. So I can validate the need for co-regulation. All of us have this need for co-regulation and co-regulation does not simply mean we're supporting each other or that the, our partner is supporting us. That, that, can be, that can be what co-regulation looks like on a behavioral level, but co-regulation is a biological communication happening between two Nervous systems, two mammals, two people, two nervous systems. It, it's cues of safety that one of those nervous systems sends to the other one. So one of those nervous systems has to be in their safe and social state or have enough access to it in order to provide cues of safety. So we all need co-regulation from our loved ones, our families, our, our coworkers. I mean, from all of us, we, we need that, right? my voice in your ears right now, you need me to be a co-regulator just because we're both mammals. If I was yelling at you, I don't think you would, I don't think your system would like that, right? So no, ideally I have enough vocal prosody and you pick that up. Or if you're watching this on YouTube, then you can see my smiling face and my eye crinkles. <laughs> so I validate that we all need co-regulation 100%. Things like a safe voice, Things like gentle touch, things like eye crinkles and eyebrows that move and the ability to tilt our head and listen. We all need that. So I validate that. All of us. However, and this is where I want to take it, we are not owed it and we are not entitled to it. It's not up to other people to give us co-regulation. I would encourage it. I think it's a good idea for all of us to provide safety cues to each other, but uh, it's, that's not up to other people to give that to us. I don't expect that from anybody. I hope for it. 
It'd be nice. I would love that. I'd appreciate that. But that's out of my hands. And I don't expect anybody to throw that my way personally. I'm not owed that from you. I'm not entitled to that from you. I can hope for it. I'll throw mine to you, but that's a decision I make. Whether or not you, well, the decision I make is debatably to be in a safe and social state. Once I'm self-regulated enough, then I will send safety cues naturally. I would hope that all of us are doing that same thing, but that's out of my hands. I can't demand that from you. Even though I need it, we all do because we're, we're mammals. We all need it. So really, it's, it's not up to us to demand it from others, but it is up to us to find people in our lives that are able to give it to us. I would love it if your, everybody in your family, everybody in your life was in their safe and social state and offering you co-regulation. I would love that for you. But that may not be the reality. Whoever you let in your life is who you let in your life at this point. I mean, especially once you're kind of aware of this, the people you allow in your life, look at that as a choice you're making. And if they're not self-regulated enough, you're allowed to say no. For, at least for new people coming in your life. And for the people that are there, creating those healthy boundaries is a really good idea. But to expect them to be what they are not is not fair to them, I don't think. So again, I don't think we're entitled to it. I don't think we're owed it. It'd be nice. It'd be great. We need it, but that's out of our control. So, it, but we what we can control is people that we allow into our life. Co-regulation does not come from demanding it from somebody else. If you're demanding someone smile at you, or pleading or begging for them to smile at you, I don't know whatever you receive in return. I don't know if that's a genuine smile. I don't know if that's genuine co-regulation. We can't demand co-regulation. Co-regulation is not, is not exactly telling other people what we need. It's of course okay to tell people what we need. I need, I need for you to you know, be more sensitive, be more empathetic. I need for you to understand me. So that's completely okay to, to express that because that is what you need. That's, that's true. And if you want to use words like co-regulation, that's fine. I don't, I don't know that people in life will get that, but for you to say, like, I need you to care. Yeah, of course you do. Yeah, I think it's 100% okay to express that. That's different than demanding it or expecting it. You can absolutely express that. And hopefully you have people in your life that are like, I, I care about you and I will make these changes. That doesn't mean that you say, hey, I need you to give me money. And they say, oh, I care about you and I'll do it. No, that's, that's way different. Basically, you're saying... I need people in my life that are self-regulated enough to be safe people that I surround myself with. And hopefully you have people in your life that are, that are, in, that are invested in their own self-regulation and their own well-being. And they can, you know, work on that. Not exactly for you, but hopefully that's, that's a priority of theirs. So it's 100% okay to say I need this in my life, but ultimately someone can say no. And maybe that comes from a defensive state. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. Like they have the ability to choose no. We don't control the people. They do with themselves what they choose to do. And we can debate about whether it's a choice and free will and whatnot. But um, 
it at least looks like choice. Basically, they can do what they want with themselves as an organism, and we it's, it's just out of our hands. And I know this is obvious, but I don't think it hurts to remind us of that. So yeah, do we need co-regulation? Yes. Can we expect it from others? Yeah. Can we demand it? No. Can we express that we what we need from others? Hell yeah. Can we allow people in our life that fulfill what we need? Yup. Can we boot out of our lives people who don't fit what we need? Yeah. Can we create healthy boundaries between ourselves and those that aren't getting booted out, but just we need some healthy boundaries? Yup. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. Ultimately, I mean, it might be hard, yeah, but, but, but yeah, we can. What I would encourage all of us to do is to be self-regulated first and then provide co-regulation. This might seem backwards because we need co-regulation, in or, at least as children, in order to build the ability to self-regulate. I mean, we always need co-regulation, but as children, hopefully we got enough of that in order to build self-regulation. And some of you may not have, like you may, you listening may be like, I, I didn't get that. I, I'm not very well self-regulated. I need it from other people. And that's true. But that also might not happen. It may be more realistic to take ownership of your self-regulation instead of waiting for others to provide co-regulation. I don't know if you have those people in your life. What you do have is you. What you do have is this knowledge of polyvocal theory. And if you're buying what I'm selling right now, you have that and you can say, you know what? You're right, Justin. I'm going to take ownership of my self-regulation and not expect it of others, but I will be looking for it. So I would really encourage all of us to be self-regulated first. Then you will naturally provide co-regulation to others. And what's really cool is you're going to attract people that can do the same. I find that those who are in a very dysregulated place find others who are in a very dysregulated place. Those who are fairly self-regulated will find people that are fairly self-regulated. It's just kind of like this magnet. To me, it seems like we just kind of like attracts like. Get yourself self-regulated as much as you can. Find safety as much as you can. Get, Get anchored in your safety state as much as you can. And then you will naturally provide co-regulation. You will naturally provide cues of safety to other people in your life. And if that happens, the people in your life that need to get to the top of their ladders are probably more likely to do so just from your safety cues, more likely than if you were just to demand it from them. You being self-regulated and then offering that cues of safety to other people is probably more helpful than you being dysregulated and demanding it and guilt-tripping people uh, about it, about them not giving you what you need. This comes up in therapy a lot. I mean, my clients, uh, no matter what their age is, whether it's the adult at nighttime or students, uh, kids or teens in the daytime, this comes up all the time. Yeah, we have needs. Yes. But we don't control the people. We just don't. We can't exactly demand it. We can't talk people into changing. We can't. Let me repeat that. We cannot talk people into changing. I don't think. We can set up healthy boundaries. Positive expectations, negative consequences. We can say, hey, you're not a part of my life until you make change. We can, we can, that's more about like us making choices for ourselves, though. I don't think 
you can reason people into changing. They kind of have to be at least open to that in the first place. But a lot of the people I work with, they say, well, I, I tell them this and I tell them this and I tell them this. And it's like, yeah, and does it help? No, because we don't control the people. They kind of have to be open to that. Like, it's just true. I don't know what, any other way around it. Yes, you need co-regulation. Yes, I need co-regulation. I don't expect you to give that to me. I hope you would. But I'm going to do the best I can to give it to you and to everybody else that I can. That starts with me. I'm going to be as self-regulated as I possibly can. And I hope you would make that same commitment. And hey, like if enough of us do that, I think it's a much different world personally. I find more satisfaction in my friendships, my relationships, myself as a parent. The more work I do on my own self-regulation, I find more satisfaction and I find myself needing less from, from them. I'm kind of okay with myself. Yeah, I need them. I need my wife. I need my kids. Of course, I'm not saying that, hey, I'm good on my own now. No. But the amount of, I don't know, I don't know the right word. The amount of need, I don't know. It's just not as intense. It's not as much. I'm more okay. I'm more patient. I'm more empathetic. And I just need less from other people in that way. It always starts with us. What, I mean, it always starts with us. The things we want in life to improve our relationships, to improve our outcomes, meet new goals. It always starts and ends with us. In my opinion, I am responsible for my state. Nobody else is responsible for my state. My wife is not responsible for my state. My kids are not responsible for my state. My boss, my coworkers, we all affect each other. Yep. My parents growing up, they affected me. My friends growing up affected me. My friends now, we all affect each other. It's like this web of cues of safety and danger, right? True, 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 true. But in this chaotic web of safety and danger cues, I'm the constant. No matter who's in or out of my life, I'm the constant. I'm, all, I'm the common denominator of my life. You're the common denominator of your life. So it kind of always has to start with you for your life. It always has to, It always has to start with me for my life. I'm responsible for my state. I'm responsible for making change to my state. I'll put it that way. Someone who affects our state in a very negative way, uh, they, I would argue they bear responsibility, but when it comes to getting out of that stuck defensive state, when it comes to making change in our own lives, that that is on us. That's what I would say. That's the caveat I want to make there. So when it comes to our loved ones, our partners, spouses, Yeah, we need stuff from them. I hope they're willing to work with you, but they might not be. And that's kind of out of our control, honestly. And so it's just like, well, what are you going to do about it? That's really what it it comes down to is it's your life. These are the people in your life. What's the next step? What what are you going to do about that? And I would really encourage you to be as self-regulated as possible and then answer that question. Because if you... (laughs) If you answer that question in a fight state, it's a, it might not be a good answer. So be as self-regulated, self-regulated as you can. And then say, this is who is in my life. This is how they are. What am I going to do about it? I can't control them. I can't force them to be the way that I want them to be. So what, what's my next step? What am I going to do about it? And that's really kind of it. 
Thank you so much for listening though, fellow stuck nut. I do hope you've learned something new to help you in your process of getting unstuck. Do me a favor, subscribe or follow, share this, please. Share it with someone you care about. I know this is kind of a challenging one, but I, I just, I don't see another way around it. So I hope you benefit from this. Bye. This podcast is not therapy, not intended to be therapy or be a replacement for therapy. Nothing in this creates or indicates a therapeutic relationship. Please consult with your therapist or seek for one in your area if you are experiencing mental health symptoms. Nothing in this podcast should be construed to be specific life advice. It's for educational and entertainment purposes only. More resources are available in the description of this episode and in the footer of justinlmft.com.